before we uh, get into this chapter, um, why don't we ask the Lord for help? Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, the more we look at him, the more we consider him, the more wonderful, the more beautiful, the more worthy he becomes. And, O oh Lord, it will take all eternity to really see the riches of the wisdom and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we just sang, we just say, oh, he's worthy. And, O oh Lord, we pray even uh, this morning that uh, you show us perhaps a, one more glimpse of the Lord Jesus, one more aspect of him for us to fall in love with him more, to worship him more. And to, uh, well, pledge our allegiance to him and say, he's my Lord, our Lord. We thank you and we pray in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I was given Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, before we get started, I guess I gotta say good morning and thank you for the invitation. Thank you for, you know, coming down here and seeing family. And then they said, tag, you're it. Go do, uh, Revelation 6, which, uh, which I appreciated as I got into it. I'm like, are you sure you don't want a Christmas message? <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, no, uh, you know, going along and, uh, you know, very, very rich chapter. And uh, initially, I thought it was difficult, but the more I read it, I read it. It's like, wow, such actually such a practical chapter, because you know it's easy sometimes. And as we just sang to, to maybe preach chapter five, and I, I and I did tell tell my brother who asked me to preach on this chapter. I go, are you sure it's not chapter five? He goes, no, it's chapter six. <laughs> okay, so we'll get be getting to chapter six. But why don't we read it? Let's open our Bibles to um, Revelation chapter six. Um, verse 1, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with the voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Verse 3, it says, When he broke the second seal, I heard uh, the second living creature saying, Come! And another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat, a, who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, uh, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat a, on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like, like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat upon it had had the name death, and Hades was following with him, and authority was uh, given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by, by the wild beast of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which had they, uh, they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, 
holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they, they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants, their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Verse 12. Then I looked and he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole, uh, the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell, fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaking by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and every island were moved out of their place. Then, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free, and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rock, among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? Well, let me see if I could fit my Bible somewhere. Maybe reaching for that a little bit later. But let's, uh, we just read Revelation chapter 6. And, uh, and, uh, I take this chapter to be, um, a view of the future, something that's gonna happen. And, uh, and I know other believers don't take this view. Many other dear believers, you know, there's all these different views to look at the, the book of Revelation to say, well, perhaps this is not prophecy, perhaps this is uh, already passed. And, and many dear believers take different views. But I take this chapter to be something still in the future, something that uh, has yet to happen. And, uh, I, and the, the reason I say that is because of uh, uh, this verse in uh, chapter 1, which uh, which, uh, you know, uh, whoever covered chapter one probably went over. And, uh, we use this to outline the book, right? In Revelation, uh, chapter one, verse 19, it talks about, uh, there, you know, the things which you have seen, you know, to write down. He, uh, the Lord Jesus told John to write down with the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place, uh, after, right? The things will take place hereafter, right? Things that are yet to happen. And I think this chapter covers that. Things that are yet to happen in the future, right? Uh, but I know other, other believers take, uh, take, uh, different, different points of view. But I'm gonna, view this chapter in a futuristic way. So I'm going to say chapter 6 is a chapter of prophecy, right? Prophecy, something that has yet to happen. Now, I want to make a comment on prophecy, right? Because sometimes, sometimes we read prophetic statements, read prophecies in the Bible, and, you know, they're so difficult. And, like, well, we just read that chapter, and we read about horsemen, and, you know, uh, you know, stars falling to the earth, and we're like, you know, what is this? And we just say, in a far-off day, maybe it doesn't apply to me. But let me make a comment on prophecy, right? And, and uh, prophecy is like a, rev- you know, is a revelation from God, right? And I put this picture up there, um, I would like to say I took that picture because I've been to the very, very north part of the world, but when I went there, I didn't see the northern lights. So this is just a 
picture from Google, okay? But uh, I would imagine to see the beauty of God's creation and see the northern lights would be kind of getting a revelation from, from God, uh, well, from God's creation anyways. Uh, so I was thinking of the, along those lines with prophecy. But I want to say prophecy is not just a prediction of the future. It's not just a prediction of the future. And I heard a brother once say, and I may mention his name because I think he's going to be speaking here in a couple of weeks. So you could ask him. I may have forgot he said this, but he said to study prophecy, he's not just studying some sanctified horoscope. That's our brother Keith Kaiser. You could bust the chops, okay? He, he said that word, okay? It's not just some sanctified horoscope, you know, that we kind of just look and, you know, uh, you know, this is what's going to happen and this represents that. And sometimes we do that with revelation, right? And I, and I remember hearing many messages and, you know, people saying like, well, you know, this, you know, represents the, you know, the antichrist and the mark of the beast perhaps could be a microchip that's inserted in your hand on your forehead. And, uh, you know, and this could be, you know, we, we, we've seen all this description, but that could be tanks and bombs. And, you know, people try like to make these predictions. And I, and I want to say there's, there's probably some benefit in that. And there's probably something good about that to, to perhaps speculate. But to say like, like, wait, you know, maybe, maybe we don't know, but perhaps this could be this. And I'm not saying that, that that's, that's wrong. But I think there's a much stronger, uh, stronger uh, uh, object, some, some stronger purpose to prophecy. Okay, uh, but again, it's not just a prediction of the future. In fact, I remember, you know, back when I was here at, at here at Boulevard Bible Chapel, and, and I think it was in my late teens, a man stood up on well, I say this pulpit or that pulpit, I can't remember, but he actually said, "Oh, I think I know who the Antichrist is." And I remember coming to him at privately because he wouldn't tell us right publicly, and I said, "I say, I begged him to say, please tell me, right." And uh, he, he didn't, so I can't tell you who it is. <laughs> but, but that's what we do. We kind of speculate. But I want to say there's a much greater purpose for prophecy, okay? Because it is meant to make an effectual change on the lives of the hearers in the present, right? Right? In view of what has been revealed, it's supposed to change our lives now. How are we to live now, right? As we study these things, right? It's supposed to make a change, to say, in view of what has been revealed, Lord, what, I, what I, do I need to do now, right? And there I, I just, uh, and I'm just going to reference because we, we don't have time to turn to a lot of these verses. But in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, right? So there it talks about the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. And, you know, talks about all these things. Right. And it says, you right, the the, you know, the the heavens will pass away and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Right. But then verse 11 says, how are we to live in all conduct? Right. Right. How are we to live? Right. And then, well, this book of Revelation, there's all these prophecies, all these things, all these pictures. But in Revelation chapter two, the Lord Jesus says, I come quickly and my reward is with me. So it's meant to make a change in our lives now. Anyways, and so we need to ask this question. How should we live in view of what God has revealed? How should we live? And, you know, to ask this question as we go through this chapter. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly because I don't fully understand it, but I was going to make a couple more comments. But uh, like we said, I take this as prophecy and the things that will take place after this, right? And I think the, the, the book of Revelation, we break it down. The things that are, yeah, futures from chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, 
all the way to uh, Revelation chapter two, uh, 22, verse 9. Okay? And, uh, and maybe this is just food for thought, but in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, talking about, you know, maybe 3,000 years ago when Moses put up this tabernacle, uh, you know, uh, there the writer to Hebrew comments, this is just a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. This is just a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And, of course, in Revelation, mostly tells us about heavenly things. I mean, it talks a lot about things that happen on earth, but just for the view from heaven, right? So when we, uh, and again, I just want to say this as a food for thought. I was going to get more into this, but, but I don't think there's time. So, but we could look into uh, the tabernacle, you know, it's just, uh, just a model to when we study heavenly things. And the, the tabernacle appears over and over and over again in the, in the Revelation, right? And, uh, and I get this mostly, uh, uh, our dear brother who's now with the Lord, David Gooding, um, you know, kind of broke up uh, the book of Revelation into these, these parts. But let's go through it quickly because I see time is flying from me. And in each one of these, uh, as he breaks down this prophecy, he actually uses the tabernacle and uh, um, aspects of the tabernacle to go on. Okay, but what I wanted to say is this chapter 6, which we're studying, the view... The view that we perhaps shadows from the tabernacle is the throne, right? Or the mercy seat where God was sitting throned, right? And, and, um, well, I wasn't here because, uh, I'm just visiting, but I think in chapter four, and I did look back at some of the videos, uh, uh brother Malcolm spoke in chapter four and mentioned the throne of God, right? Uh, as picture there. And everything, uh, in this section needs to look back to, the throne and him who sits there. And of course, in chapter 5, we saw, uh, well, the lamb in the midst of the throne, right? And he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, right? The lamb, right? And all that worship, the worship that was there. And I think our brother Dave Bosworth um, spoke on that, if, if you remember. But let's get into chapter 6. Um, in chapter 6, the seals are opened as, uh, as we just read, right? The seals were open, and the first four seals, there's these four horsemen, right? And I think they're famously called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? And and this is why is is perhaps this chapter is difficult because we read that and we see, you know, this. I, I don't know what you, I don't know what you imagine, right? To me, I almost think of uh, kind of pictures. And uh, sorry, is there kids here? It's going to be a little bit scary image, okay? But. Uh, Somehow we think of pictures from, you know, picture in our mind, some picture from like a scary movie or something where we see this, you know, this evil monster, right? And we think about, you know, this, this, this ugly, you know, riders riding on a horse, right? And, uh, you know, we think of something from legend or fairy tale, right? We think about something that's, you know, you know, in the land of Narnia, right? We think about the white witch or, 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 you know, the Lord of the Rings. And this is a picture from the movie, the Lord of the Rings, you know, the Nazgul. Or, or whatever, right? And you maybe think about some of the, some of the, some, some ugly, some ugly image, right? And you start thinking like, like, well, you know, you start thinking this is, is this a fairy tale? What are we reading, right? Is this some epic imaginary story? And then we say, what does that have to do with me, the way I live now? What does that have to, how does this affect us today now? Because I don't live in Narnia. I don't live in Middle Earth, right? Hogwarts or whatever you want to think about, right? 
I live in Pembroke Pines, or I live in, you know, uh, Pompano Beach, or, or, and I live in 2021. It's about to be 2022. What does this have to do with me? What does this prophecy have to do with me with all these horsemen, right? And all these, uh, you know, ugly images, you know, someone carrying a sword, they aren't carrying two scales, you know, they aren't carrying a bow. What does that have to do with me? Well, as I studied this chapter, started seeing how relevant this prophecy is to our actual world and as we start considering things that have happened right in a, in a much smaller scale kind of pictures these four horsemen and uh like i said this is yet future and perhaps you know it's going to go on a, on a global scale of what these four horsemen represent but, uh, well, let's go ahead and let's make a couple of comments about these horsemen. Uh, the first seal is we see a horseman with a bow with no arrows. Okay, a bow with no arrows. And I want to say very quickly, I don't think that the horsemen don't actually represent actual human characters or, or you know, demons or otherwise, right? It's just a picture of what's going to happen worldwide, globally. This is what's going to dominate, perhaps, uh, you know, the whole world, right? It's not actually talking about any actual human character or otherwise. But maybe, but maybe the first one does, okay? But maybe the first one does. And, and, uh, and again, I'm not fully dogmatic in these things, but I think the first one actually represents, you know, this, this, uh, this character whom the Bible calls the Antichrist, the man of sin, the beast, the little horn uh, from the prophecy of Daniel, right? I think the first one perhaps points to an actual human being who's going to want to come. And like I said, he was going to conquer, right, and rule. And I think it does point to a human character. The other three, I don't think, do. But we read about, you know, this horseman had a bow and no arrows. And he said he went out to conquer and bent on conquering, right? And I'm going to zero in on that because there's a lot of things we can zero in. But he had a bow and no arrows. He went, was bent on conquering, right? And when we think about that, a bow and no arrows, you really can't kill or shoot anybody, right? If you have a bow and no arrows. But it's still a weapon. And... uh I think what it means is that this man comes to power, this character comes to power, right, without ever shooting or killing anybody. And perhaps it's because he uses, and we see that, I mean, this is very relevant to our world today. We see people who use politics, right, and make speeches, right, and they have charisma, great following after them, and they come to power. And we have seen that in history, haven't we, right? He has a bow with no arrows. He comes to power, right, he almost almost fighting, but doesn't kill anybody. And uh, the Bible says he's bent on conquering. Not only does he get gain power, but he wants more power, right? He not only conquered, he wants to conquer some more, right? And he wants his power to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, when we think about history, there'll be many, many people, many, many men like that. And I started thinking about, I started thinking about people in history where people have followed individuals, have followed men who are bent on concrete because they promise, promise certain things, promise peace, promise things to save them, promise prosperity, right? And there are many sad, sad uh, uh, um, men in history, sad stories where people followed 
a man bent on conquering, right? And, I, and I'm going to put some pictures up here. It's supposed to be a sculpture of Alexander the Great, who obviously was bent on conquering. Uh, uh, this one is, uh, um, I can't remember his name, huh? Genghis Khan, yes, Genghis Khan, who, uh, who I think uh, butchered hundreds of thousands of people, right? And there are going to be some more familiar faces. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. I thought about, obviously, he needs no introduction, right? He came to power in Germany without ever firing a weapon, right? And, of course, we saw that disaster that came, right? Promising the German people, you know, peace and prosperity, right? Adolf Hitler. This is Joseph Stalin. Again, came to power uh, without ever firing a weapon. And the massive millions he he killed, especially in Ukraine. And, uh, well, it's Mao Zedong, right? And uh, all the millions he killed, right? Let's think about more of our day, right? This is Hugo Chavez, right? A man who came to power, right, promising, you know, prosperity, socialism. And now we see the country of Venezuela, right, falling apart, right? Right? I think of Vladimir Putin, right? You think of, uh, you know, I remember when I was a little kid how, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart and Russia, and it was such promise, and Russia was going to become, you know, a free country, democratic, and all these things. And we think about their first president, Boris Yeltsin. Then this man came to power, and I don't think he's ever going to leave power, right? And he's not just happy having Russia, right? He's looking at, oh, I kind of like Ukraine, and he keeps just kind of bent on conquering, right? He wants more power, right? And, uh, well, we thought... We thought China was going to become more free and open. And uh, apparently this, I think this is the president or prime minister. I don't know what they call him in China. But uh, this is Xi Jinping, who, uh, who a couple of years ago, if I'm correct, I think his party voted to him that he'll be in power for life, right? So there are many, many people. And, of course, China is very bent on conquering, right? He, they just want, there is not enough to just have the power they have. They want more power, right? So there are many Many things will make some more comments in history, right? But I want to compare that to the Son of Man in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. And again, I'm just going to reference that looking at the, the clock moves too fast. But in Matthew chapter 20, verse, uh, uh, um, well, before verse 28, you remember that, that uh, one of the, the mother, James and John, comes to the Lord Jesus and basically says, Can you grant for my sons, one of them to stand at your right hand and the other to stand at your left hand when you come in glory, right? And she was asking that, right? She was asking for her sons to have power, right? And then, of course, the Lord Jesus said, you know, that's not, that's not for me to grant, right? That's been appointed by my father, right? And then all the disciples started arguing, who of them is the greatest? And they got mad at James and John, right? And they were all arguing. And there, and if you, if you read it, and I encourage you to read it, the Lord Jesus says he called them to himself. He went and called the disciples to himself. And he made it, it sounded like he's making this very clear, right? He wanted to make a point to them. And he said, you know, you see the Gentiles, they're great men. They exercise authority over them. And the rulers, right, show power over them. Then he said this, it will not be like that among you. It will not be like that among you. And man, I wish... Even church leaders, you know, when we look at church history, would have learned that lesson, right? It will be, not be like that among you. He said, 
the greatest of all will be the servant of all, right? If you want to be great, you'll be the slave, right? You will go to the bottom. And then he said this in verse 28, right? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. How different is the Lord Jesus Christ from all these pictures we just put up there. Right? He did not, he was not bent on conquering. He actually came here to serve. And right? he gave his life for us. Right? To redeem us. Let's go on. Well, oh, I want to make a comment that uh, this first horseman, he had a crown given to him. And I, and I just want to emphasize this really quick. Um, even in all this, and again, the view is from the throne of God, right? All these seals are being opened from the throne of God. And the point is that even in all these things, God allowed, allowed these things. God, God is God, God who granted this power to this man, right? It then not goes beyond the will of God, right? It reminds me of, uh, of Luke chapter 4. Right? Where, where the Lord Jesus is being tempted by Satan himself, right? And Satan offers them all, shows them all the kingdoms of the earth, right? And it says, I will give this to you. And he says this phrase, for they were given to me. It's not like he created them. It's not like he owned them, right? He, they were just granted to him for a time, right? The heavens ruling the kingdoms of man. Even all these things that are happening here on earth. Even if this, this man, the Antichrist, comes and takes over the world. It's not, it's not past God, right? The crown had to be given to him, right? God is still in control. God is still on the throne. So I wanted to emphasize that. So we've got to go through it quickly because um, we're out of time. Well, in seal two, we see, uh, we see uh, a horseman which uh, says he takes peace from the earth. It was granted to take peace from the earth, right? I want to think about conflict and strife and maybe even full civil war and other types of war, right? And, um, and well, although many people are looking for peace, and maybe looking for peace now, and perhaps the first man, right? We talk about the first man, perhaps to represent the Antichrist, promises them peace, promises them peace, but no peace comes. No peace comes. Actually, actually peace is taken away. And I want to say that the peace that the world offers... The peace that the man of sin offers is just a superficial peace. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11, there the Lord is complaining about the leaders of Israel in that day. He talks about the priests. He talks about the rulers, the elders. And he says, and he says they comfort my people superficially. It's only the superficial peace, right? They comfort my people superficially because they say peace, peace, but there is no peace. And that's what uh, Jeremiah 8, 11 says. Right? And, you know, in the future, when uh, the Antichrist comes, he'll say, peace, peace. But it's, there is no peace. It's just superficial. Superficial. Right? And, um, well, talking about the same, uh, um, the same period of time in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 3, and when you hear peace and safety, then it says, then comes Right, war and destruction, like you know, uh, birth pangs upon a pregnant woman. Right, it kind of they say peace, but then war comes, and that's what Seal Two represents. And I thought about many, many things in in uh, many examples of this in history. How many people again have promised peace, 
But then war just comes right after. And we thought, we saw those men, we thought about Hitler, we thought about uh, uh, people promised peace, but let's talk about more modern day events. When, when I was younger, you know, we just kind of, my parents would turn on the news and you just kind of hear some of the news and, you know, you're young, so you kind of not pay attention to it. But back in the 1990s, there's this massive civil war that happened in a country that doesn't exist anymore called Yugoslavia, right? And in fact, uh, when you Google how many countries did Yugoslavia break into, some of, some of, some of them say six, some, some websites say six, some of them say seven, right? And it is North Macedonia country, maybe it's part of Serbia, and they're still kind of going at it. They're still saying, you know, all this, this, uh, this, uh, you know, massive battle and the massive blood that was spilt on the, the Balkans back in the 1990s. And, uh, well, the reason I thought about that is because my daughter watched this documentary on ESPN, and it was called Once Brothers, right? And I don't know if you know who these men are. Uh, the one on the right, is uh, his name is Vlade Divox, and the one on the left, his name is uh, Drazen Petrovich. And if you're a big NBA fan, you would know who they are. But they were like brothers. They played for Yugoslavian team together, right? They were like almost inseparable. But one of them was Croatian. The other one was Serbian. And sadly, when the whole war broke out, they ended up breaking their friendship, hating each other, and uh, not even speaking to each other. And back in 1993, the man on the left, his name is Drazen Petrovic, he ended up getting killed in a car accident. And all these years later, you know, they made this documentary, and the man on the right, Vlade Divac's lament, never reconciling with his, you know, his teammate, his brother, right? He would say, you know, the, the document is called Once Brothers. And we see how war just, you know, destroys and even destroys friendships and it affects all the way to people here in the NBA. But uh, let's talk about more recent events. This is a picture of, uh, of a small village in the, in the jungles of Peru. And I don't know if you, I know it's not well to see, but the person on the left is my daughter, the person on the right is uh, Michael Tuttle's daughter, and they were my helpers. We were doing a little uh, clinic there when we visited Peru uh, the early part of 2020 before the pandemic hit. But when we went and visited these villages, the only way you could get to these villages through riverboat, and you get to, to them through riverboat. When we got there, we would talk to the old people, and the old people would tell me, they would say, Oh, we remember that wonderful missionary. His name was Bert Elliott. He was the brother of Jim Elliott, if, if, you, if you recall. We remember this, brother, this wonderful brother named Bert Elliott. And uh, here he went and he planted all these little churches, uh, you know, on these little villages that you can only get to it by river, you know, on the Amazon jungle, right? And there were wonderful little, little meetings there in these, you know, little towns of 500 people, right? A very, very rural community, you know, and, you know, basically a jungle community is what it was. And well, back in the 1980s, there was this massive civil war in Peru. And what happened is a lot of people were killed and butchered. And a lot of Christians in those towns were killed, right? And uh, in fact, the survivors were mostly older women who would tell me these stories. And, uh, and sadly, they say they came and promised us peace. 
right? They promised us peace, right? And in fact, they put, they took on the name, these groups put on the name, very wonderful name. They call themselves El Sendero Luminoso, right? The shining path, right? This is the way, prosperity, right? We're going to bring Peru and make, we're going to make Peru wonderful, right? And instead, they just started butchering everybody, killed all the Christians, became drug lords, and, uh, and that's a very sad thing. And all those churches closed down, right? And it was wonderful. Well, I don't have time to, well, very quickly, Brother Micah Tuttle, after the whole conflict ended, you know, came there and reestablished a lot of those churches. But, uh, but we see, you know, war torn countries. And, uh, you know, I've seen them with my own eyes. But again, how different is that from the one who conquered by being slain, right? And we saw that in chapter 5. How different is that one, right? How the Lord Jesus conquer, right? It says, for you were slain, right? And they come, they fall down and worship before, for you were slain, right? And then John chapter 14, the Lord Jesus says, peace I give to you, my peace, right? Not as the world gives, not as the world gives peace, right? The superficial peace, right? Right? The Lord complains is just superficial comfort that the world gives, right? But this peace comes from within, right? To know that your sins are forgiven. To know that you have forgiveness with God. To know that you have eternal life, right? That's the peace that the Lord gives, right? And then he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be, right? Do not, do not let them be, uh, 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 how does it say, do not be troubled, not let them be afraid, right? <laughs> afraid, right? Because this is an inner peace that surpasses all understanding. Even in the difficulties of life, Right? He is the Prince of Peace. And He gives us peace and even the most difficult of times. Let's move quickly. All right. The third horseman brings poverty. Brings poverty, right? And we'll go through it quickly, right? But uh, as you can see, this is a progression. A man bent on conquering, perhaps promising peace, perhaps promising everything, right? And then comes, then comes, you know, this conflict. And then comes, you know, massive inflation, poverty, famine, starvation, right? And well, I also took this picture. And uh, well, back in 2019, the Lord uh, gave me the opportunity to go to West Africa. And I know, I think some, some of the, some of the brethren here have been and visited Africa. I don't know if you're a missionary. <laughs> That's right. I knew someone like that, right? But this is the country of Liberia. And again, I went there to do a medical missions. And, uh, and I'm still, I still have the scars in my soul from the poverty I saw. I have never seen such poverty. And again, uh, you know, uh, very quick, there was this massive civil war in Liberia where you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people got killed. And again, you know, uh, people promising certain things and all these groups just fighting each other. Uh, again, I don't have time to tell the story, but we set up this small clinic. We were literally just passing out pills to treat malaria. So the only thing we we're doing, malaria and other things, right? And uh, we had all this massive uh, uh, response. The whole town came out. And this is the second day. This is at 8 a.m. in the morning. We kind of just showed up to run the clinic again. And all these people were already waiting, and people sat and stood in the sun for eight, nine hours to, to, to see us. And I'm like, we're not doing that much. And, but the poverty and the need just for medicine just was so incredible that, that to me, I was, I was just so overwhelmed by it, right? And this is what happens. Poverty and famine come after war, after people promise great big things, right? And again, the natural progression is 
just death, right? Just death. When we put our trust in a man, we put our trust in a man to save us, right? And we think about Jeremiah 17.5. says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and make flesh his strength, right? Cursed is the man who uh, puts his trust in mankind. Now, I mentioned um, many, uh, many examples in history and, you know, things that I have seen with my own eyes in war-torn countries. But uh, I want to say, I want to say this. I haven't mentioned the United States, and uh, for the most part, we have been spared some of these things, right? And I, I have never mentioned... Uh, 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 the many times I preach, which I have not been too many times in Bolivar, but I don't think I ever mentioned something slightly patriotic, so I'm going to do it now. So I, I don't know if that, hopefully, uh, uh, you guys will take it well. Hopefully that won't offend other people. But there was this principle that the United States was founded on. And I know some of the founding fathers of this country were Christian, and some of them were not, Okay. And, and again, I'm not a history buff. You could correct me if I get any of this wrong. But, but one of the principles I learned uh, actually here in South Florida in Cooper City High School when I took, when I took uh, you know, when I learned about American history. But one of the principles that we're finding is do not trust men. Do not trust man. And obviously they just fought over a revolutionary war and they're fighting tyranny, but do not trust men. We cannot trust anybody. It doesn't matter how good they are, right? And they went and divided power, divided power, right? They said we need to have three branches of government, right? And one of them can have more power over the other. And then they said, you know, the states and the, the, the federal government, let's give the states a lot of power. So, you know, there's all these balance of power, right? And, uh, and in one sense, I want to say maybe that was from God, right? And later, later, because they would acknowledge, you know, in the in the um, in the Pledge of Allegiance, they would now just say one nation under God, right? And uh, later, it would make it to all our currency because we don't trust man, right? We do not put our trust in man, right? In God, we trust, right? And perhaps is this principle? And I want to say I believe it. Again, I'm not a history buff. If you want to challenge me on it? You may be right. I may be wrong. But is this principle that? For the most part, America has been spared. Has been spared from all this tyranny and you know things that lead to civil war and famine. I know we had a civil war, so you challenge me on that too. But anyways, uh, for the most part, we've been spared some of these things. And well, um, you could argue that you know some of these first principles have been somewhat uh, somewhat are being attacked now. And uh, what's a Christian supposed to do is something that I may not have uh, an answer for. And uh, like uh, other preachers say, that's perhaps another message for another day, okay? So I'm not, I'm not going to get into that one. But uh, when we think about this in the future, we're talking about this prophecy. It seems that about 25% of the population of the world is going to die, okay? About 25% of the population of the world is going to die. Which when we think about, that, that's massive. That is, we can't even imagine that, right? But again, we look at history, right? We... Right, we look at history, we start thinking like, you know, think about the millions that Hitler killed and Stalin and Pol Pot and, and Mao and all these things, right? You know, think about that and say, you know, it's not that far fetched that these things could happen so. Right? So so we gotta start thinking, you know, uh 
how could we live for the Lord now? Because these things, you know, are in the Bible and they will take place. I know our time is going quickly, so so forgive me. I do want to get through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to go uh, try to go be as fast as I could. And because the, the last two seals, I think, are are really important. The fifth seal, when the, the Lamb opens the fifth seal, we see the martyrs under the altar. And again, I say as a result of the other seals, right? You know, again, there's this progression where we put trust in a man to save us. And, you know, and then comes, you know, conflict and war and then famine and then death, right? But in all this, you know, when great men take power, right? And they see all these political upheavals and, you know, problems in their countries. A lot of times when we look at history, what happens is that they end up blaming Christians, Right, and we go all the way back to when the church was just being founded. Right, through the, the the church in the first century, what happened? Nero, Nero, there was this great fire in Rome, and perhaps Nero himself started it. You know what he did? He blamed the Christians. He said those the Christians who burned down Rome. Right, and well, has happened many times in history, and maybe I'll mention some of them quickly. But uh, as I googled some of the some of the martyrs that are happening today. This is a picture from Nigeria. Nigeria is supposed to be a free country, right? Where Christians and Muslims are supposed to live in peace together. But of course, you know, there's a terrorist group called Boko Haram. And they have martyred, you know, hundreds of Christians. This is a picture from them. During the last couple of, I think just, just the last couple of years, I don't know, Christian martyrs have really, the Lord has brought them about. And this book, um, our brother brother said it'll be good for you to read it. So I did. It's called Killing Christians. And in this book, it shows, uh, well, a lot of it is Christians dying in Muslim countries and in Iraq and Somalia. And it tells these, this, well, a lot of them are encouraging, but yet just gut-wrenching stories of Christians Dying in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Dying because of their testimony. Kind of we just read in the fifth seal, right? And, uh, well, well, I was going to tell, tell a quick story from this book. There was a brother named Shukri that this book tells us about. He was uh, an Iraqi. He was born in Fallujah. And uh, I don't have time to tell how the Lord saved him, but it was amazing. And not only saved him, saved his wife. And he also had a child, right? A small, uh, a young baby boy. But uh, he was in Fallujah and there meeting with the underground church. And as he was meeting there, he felt this strong call of the Lord to go preach the gospel in another city in Iraq called Mosul, right? And these cities have been in the, in the news, right? To go preach the gospel in Mosul. The Lord called them. And he remember he remembers thinking like, Lord, I don't know if I want to go to Mosul. But then he remembered, he remembered the story of Jonah. And he, the story, what happened is, Mosul, the city of Mosul, in the ancient world used to be called Nineveh. It used to be called Nineveh. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to do what Jonah did. I am actually going to follow the Lord. And he went into Mosul. And he didn't want to go because... During that time, and this takes place in 2014, there's a terrorist group called ISIS, which controlled Mosul. And he went there and preached the gospel. 
passed out Bibles in their main mosque. And, uh, well, was there for a little bit until ISIS uh, captured him. And, uh, well, you, you could read the story, but the massive torture they put him through. The only reason we know this story is because his wife survived them, right? And they passed it on to this book. And we say sometimes, Lord, why did you call that brother to Mosul? I mean, some people were saved, but the torture they put him through, Lord, why? Then, a couple of years ago, also, someone, another brother said, you should read this book. It's called Torture for Christ. And it's the story about Richard Warmbrand. Well, I remember I said how Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome. It seems like when communism had its strongest foothold in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, it seemed like communism blamed Christians or people of faith for being backwards and not reaching this utopia that, you know, that Karl Marx promised, right? It seemed like they were blaming Christians, because we're not reaching this wonderful utopia. We're not reaching this, you know, peace and prosperity that we should have reached reaching communism, right? And this, this book, actually, uh, the most I ever learned about communism was reading this book. But uh, there we hear about the massive torture that this man went through, uh, Richard Warmbrand. He was able to escape to the West, an amazing story. He's actually the one who founded Voice of the Martyrs. But in this book... The story that most most struck me, he tells a story about this woman, a young woman, who she was a spy for the secret the secret police, right? Secret police would try to spy out on Christians, find out where they are, and try to put you know throw them in jail and torture them and do all terrible things on them. This woman was part of that secret police, and that she would spy out Christians and meet with them in secret places, you know, to report back to them. She actually saw how wonderful Christians are, how how they were so kind to her, how they loved their Lord, right? And she was so overwhelmed, she herself became a Christian. And actually, she became a double spy, right? Now she was spying on the secret police for the Christians. And, uh, and well, I wish I could tell you the story ended there, but the secret police found out about this, that she was a double spy. And, well, you think they would arrest her and torture her. They didn't do that right away. To add insult to injury, they waited. I think they waited something like three months. And, well, they were waiting for her wedding day. The day that should have been her, excuse me, the happiest day of her life. Right? And, um, well, they arrested her right after she said her vows and tortured her and and well, the brother Richard, uh, brother Richard Wormbrand doesn't hold back. He said uh, the torture, the rape that she went through makes us say, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? Right? Lord, how long is this going to happen? Lord, how long are your people going to die? Lord, when is it you're going to come? And, uh, well, bring justice on this earth. Lord, how long? And while maybe you ask this question in your most difficult time, excuse me, maybe you ask this question when you 
gone through suffering. Lord, how long? And while this question was asked by the martyrs who were under the altar, and, uh, well, we, you know, maybe whichever brother does um, chapter 7, we're going to see them. They're no longer under the altar. They're before the throne. And maybe that brother could get into it. Amen. But uh, they're, at, they're underneath the altar, right? They suffer martyrdom. They're saying, Lord, how long? How long will you not come and judge those who killed us, right? And well, if you genuinely ask that question, if you're going through suffering, you genuinely ask the Lord, how long, Lord? Lord, why? Lord, how long? Think, uh, well, the book of James says though, that uh, God will give you wisdom. You ask for wisdom. God will give you the answer, right? And there is an answer here, right? But as we think about our brothers and sisters who are being killed, we ask how long? And the answer is uh, until the brethren who were to be killed will be completed, Right? There's going to be a day of completion, right? There's going to be a day when the last martyr will come, right? As Psalm 103 says, he will not keep his anger forever. The Lord is gracious, right? Slow to anger, right? But Psalm 103 says, he will not always strive with man, right? The Lord, please say, please repent. The Lord say, please come to me. You know, I'll give you eternal life, right? The Lord calls out, say, come to me all who labor heavy laden. I'll give you rest. But he will not come says he will not strive with man forever. He will not always come and the salvation will not be forever, will not be offered forever. He will come and judge, right? And this is the sixth seal, right? When he opens the sixth seal, we see, well, the answer to the martyrs, right? The Lord is coming to judge. The Lord is coming, right? The Lord will not always hold back. The Lord will come in judgment, right? And we read about all these cataclysmic events and perhaps you know I, I take it more as literal but perhaps they're symbolic you know i don't want to get i don't get super dogmatic on it but the the reality shows of the judgment on the lamb right the lord jesus christ is coming here to judge this world right they will not leave the guilty unpunished right and there will be no doubt of God's existence then, right? And perhaps some, there's some atheist people now, and they say, you know, they say, you know, where is God? But as we read, as we read, there'll be no doubt of God's existence, right? Nor there will be any doubt of the judgment of God. There'll be no doubt of the judgment of God, right? Because, right, they would say the, the, the day of his judgment has come, right? And it doesn't matter their importance, right? It doesn't matter if you're right, they're kings, all the way down, they're great men, right? Rulers, all the way down to, says slaves, right? Doesn't matter your hierarchy, right? Judgment is going to come. God will judge. He will not hold his anger forever. But the sad part is, yet they prefer to die than repent, right? They crawl out, they go into the caves, they cry out, say, fall on us and hide us. For the great uh, judgment of God has come. The great day of the Lamb has come. Who is able to stand? And sometimes, and I want to make a comment on this, sometimes people think, you know, all this trouble, maybe death is the end. But it seems like the Bible doesn't show that, right? Death is not the end. I know, and I know some dear believers but perhaps believe in, you know, what they call total uh, annihilation. And uh, I heard many podcasts and many messages of, of dear, again, dear believers who believe that. But, uh, well, the book of Hebrews says, right, uh, 
Right, it says they appointed for a man to die once, then the judgment, right? And Revelation chapter, uh, uh, chapter 20 talks about the dead standing before the great white throne. So, so it's sad that they preferred to die than repent because even at the 11th hour, I think God is still able to save, right? And uh, the next chapter, again, I don't want to touch the next chapter and mess with the brother who's preaching the next chapter, but it says, you know, saw this great multitude coming out of great tribulation, right? And they will stand, and they're not no longer under the altar. They're standing before the throne. But I want to say, perhaps there's someone here, right? Because uh, this prophecy talks about people who prefer to die rather than repent. And sadly, there's people here on this world, right? They would rather die than bow the knee to the Lord. They would rather die than, uh, well, come to the Savior. And I know we're way, way past out of time, but I would ask you, in view of what we just read, in view of what uh, you just heard, would you be like these people? Would you say, no, I want to stay in my sin? Or would you turn to the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have considered some of these things, we consider this prophecy, Lord, and uh, Lord, this is your word. And you want us to study it. And you want us to study even the hard parts, the, what we think about the prophetic parts. And, and Lord, uh, we pray that you open our spiritual eyes to see. For Lord, we want, want your word to have its effect on us, what you meant to have, to change the way we live now, here in 2021, as we are about to start 2022. A new year, Lord, as we think about that. How are we to live in view of these things in view of eternity how are we to uh uh, lord walk and show forth the lord jesus christ in our day and age here in our time in our generation for we read about a future generation but it's not that far-fetched we have seen many as the as the bible says many antichrists have come and many evil men have come and many people bent on conquering have come And sadly, we have seen many martyrs, Lord. And it seems like there's many martyrs to be. But, oh, Lord, uh, we come and we pray that we be faithful to you. No matter what, Lord, even maybe some of us here would be martyred for your name. I pray that we would be faithful to our Lord who first died for us. For he is worthy. For he is the one who was slain. And, oh, Lord, he's worthy to come and judge. Give him all the glory and honor and praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.